invite you to turn with me to our text for the sermon this Lord's Day, as it's found in Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. This is part two of the sermon that we began last Lord's Day, dealing with these verses. And so we'll proceed through the eighth verse, God willing, uh, today. Daniel 7, verses 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. As a young Christian, I recall being very excited to find whatever book I could find on the subject of prophecy. I listened to sermons. I filled my uh, mind with trying to satisfy all the curiosity I had about these uh, prophecies made in the scripture there was no lack of uh, teachers, uh, not saying they were good teachers, but there was no lack of teachers uh, to address 
the subject of prophecy, as I recall in those, those days. And I would simply add there's no lack of teachers today uh, as well um, with regard to matters related to prophecy. But as I look back, as I think back, uh, so many of those alleged interpretations of the prophetic scriptures uh, were missing, I believe, uh, a very, very, and most important uh, interpretive key to understanding prophecy. And that interpretive key to unlocking the door to an understanding of prophetic scripture is the scripture itself. Scripture interprets scripture. Current events do not interpret scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. Current events confirm the interpretation of scripture. When we get that backwards, then we are reading something and we our minds go to all kinds of current events that must be the fulfillment of that prophecy without understanding, first of all, we need to understand what the Bible says concerning those prophetic statements. And then, once we understand that correctly, then we seek to find the fulfillment in history to those particular events. I think there is a very helpful, accurate summary of this principle that scripture interprets scripture. It's found in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 9, where it says, the infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it may be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly, that speak more clearly in the Bible. So when we come to something that is hard to understand, we don't come up with our own fanciful interpretation. We go to other places in the Bible that speak more clearly to that particular matter that is before us. And so, just as Scripture interprets Scripture, Scripture interprets prophecy, which is Scripture. As we have now begun to consider the prophetic section in the book of Daniel, that is Daniel chapters 7 through 12, Seeking to understand these prophecies from a study of other portions of Scripture will be the key that God will use for us to unlock the door to their meaning and understanding. And then, by God's grace, we will look into history to find the fulfillment of these particular prophecies. Now, some sermons uh, may be of such a nature that they move us to tears, um, can really draw us emotionally uh, to that point of just weeping before the Lord. 
if this sermon does, praise God, but I, I think this is probably and likely to be more of a sermon, and, and probably many of these sermons dealing with prophecy that perhaps may not so much move us to tears, but move us to understanding, which is, new, which is most essential. We need to be guided, first of all, uh, by light before we're guided by heat. The light of God's word, understanding God's word, that's most important. And if we are moved to tears by God's spirit, wonderful, praise him. But most importantly, we need to understand, and may that be the case as we continue in these sermons concerning prophetic events. Well, this is the second part, as I indicated to the sermon that began last Lord's Day, wherein we began looking at the night vision that God gave to Daniel, wherein Daniel saw this sea with four winds converging together from the east, the west, the north, and the south, stirring up this great sea. And from this great sea arises four beasts. Four beasts, which represent, signify four bestial kingdoms that were to come up uh, in history, which God was to raise up in history. We looked at two of those beasts last Lord's Day, and you'll recall, first of all, the lion, and uh, that is in verse Daniel 7, 4. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. That's parallel to what is said in Daniel chapter 2 to the head of gold and that great image of that dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, which was Babylon. The second beast that we considered last Lord's Day was the bear in verse 5, Daniel 7, 5, and behold, another beast a second like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it because the teeth of it, or between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. And that is parallel in the image, that great image of that dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. That's parallel to the the chest and the arms of silver, which signifies Medo-Persia, the kingdom of Medo-Persia. This Lord's Day, we, God willing, will we'll make it through the next two beasts, uh, through verse 8. The leopard, <clears throat> uh, in verse 6, is parallel back to the image of Nebuchadnezzar, that's parallel to the belly and the thighs of brass in Daniel 2.32, which represents Greece, the kingdom of Greece. And then uh, this dreadful, terrible beast, 
which cannot even be given a name, uh, the fourth beast. Uh, and this beast has ten horns. In verses 7 through 8, Daniel 7, 7 through 8. <clears throat> And we're going to look at this. This is parallel to the legs of iron with the ten toes in Daniel 2.33, which signifies Rome. So let's, let's uh, go ahead and look at the third beast in this list of beasts, the leopard, in verse 6, Daniel 7.6. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. As I said, this is parallel to the belly and thighs of brass back in that image, Daniel 2.32, which represents the empire of Greece. Daniel's night vision here in chapter 7 describing four different bestial kingdoms is parallel, and I spent uh, a while talking about this in the previous sermon, but let me just again review very, very quickly. So these four beasts that we find here are the same kingdoms that are spoken of in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. There we again see the head of gold, Babylon, uh, which uh, that Babylonian empire ruled from 605 to 539 BC. Then followed the next kingdom, Medo-Persia. These are just successive kingdoms, one conquering the next, so there is a, a consecutive, successive um, nature to, the, to these uh, uh, kingdoms that are revealed here. Uh, they don't start at one period of history and jump uh, hundreds or thousands of years over history. They, they follow consecutively one after the other as in the dream and as in the vision that we see. Medo-Persia follows Babylon, 539, it ruled from 539 to 333 BC. Then the empire of Greece follows Medo-Persia, that was, and it ruled from 333 uh, to 63 BC. And then Rome ruled and conquered the whole world known at that time from 63 BC to 476 AD as a united kingdom. But then, as we will see, it was divided among, in the image, ten toes. And among the beasts, as we'll see, it was divided among ten horns. So there is that likeness and parallel between these, the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the vision of Daniel. 
And so again, these, these beasts correspond to each of those metallic sections of that dream, of that image that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon, a lion with wings. Uh, we looked at passages of scripture which speak of Babylon being like a lion and, and going forth with the wings of an eagle in Jeremiah 4, verses 7 and 13. Medo-Persia is the second beast, a bear raised higher on one side than the other. Medo-Persia uh, was between the two kingdoms, Media and Persia. Uh, Persia was the stronger of the two kingdoms. It had uh, supremacy and basically for all intents and purposes later on in its history just simply is called the Persian Empire. Then uh, Greece, as we've noted, uh, which is a leopard with four wings and four heads. And then Rome, which is a terrible, indescribable beast. It has its united portion of history, Rome united, but it also has a portion of history in which it's divided. And that's also depicted in the beast that come up, as well as in the image to Nebuchadnezzar by way of the ten toes and by way of the ten horns on this beast, this fourth beast. And so, why are these, why are these beasts, are these kingdoms likened to beasts? Uh, well, they're likened to beasts and this is, again, review, because uh, they are bestial in nature, because uh, they do not rule for God. They rule for themselves. Uh, they, they do not honor God's commandments. Uh, they are not the ministers of God to us for good. Uh, they are bestial uh, kingdoms and governments that seek to crush and oppress, uh, not to exalt uh, the duties and the rights which God has given to us, but rather uh, to impose upon the people their own uh, authority and their own tyranny, uh, suppressing the, the duties and the rights that God has given. And so they are bestial in that sense. Uh, they crush, they oppress, they tyrannize. And so any kingdom, therefore, uh, that is likened uh, to having those types of qualities and characteristics, whether in times past or in times present, uh, can be called a bestial kingdom. It has the nature of a beast in a similar way. The lives of these uh, beasts and their boundaries, the extent of their conquest, was not really determined by them, but is rather determined by the Lord God who reigns supreme. Again, kingdoms like to, and rulers like to think what they have accomplished, right? 
boasting about what they have accomplished here and there, bringing all glory to themselves, not glory to God. That's the evidence of a bestial kingdom uh, that's not giving glory to the Lord God, but is giving glory to one taking that glory, robbing God of that glory. And so that was true of these particular kingdoms as well. In Jeremiah chapter uh, 10, verses 6 through 7, we read, For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might. Who would not fear thee, O King of nations? For to thee doth it appertain, forasmuch as among all wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms there is none like unto thee. So a kingdom that acknowledges that is not a bestial kingdom. But what kingdom do we, do we know of? What kingdom do we now know of that does that? In its, in its documents, in its in its constitutions. I don't know of any present day kingdom that does that, that acknowledges God, there's none like unto thee, O Lord our God, King of the nations. The Apostle Paul was preaching to the Athenians in Acts 17, in verses 24 and 26. Notice what he says also. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, not the kings of this earth, but he, God, is Lord of heaven and earth, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. God's the one who's determined how long these kingdoms would rule and the extent and the boundaries of these kingdoms. It's not the kingdoms themselves ultimately. It's God that determines that. They do not honor God for doing so. They take all credit and glory to themselves. But what comfort, dear ones, this brings to us to understand and to know this truth that it's God who is king of the nations. It's God that sets the extent of power and, and the reign and the territory. It's God that determines all that. What comfort that brings to us as Christians. When we see tyranny rising up, when we see bestial governments seeking to devour and to crush and to tyrannize, how we praise God that they are not the ones in control. It's our God that reigns. He's the God of the nations. It's Jesus Christ that is prince of the kings of the earth. He doesn't answer to them. They answer to him. He laughs at them. Psalm 2 says. He laughs at them and all of their conspiracies and their plots to overthrow him. And that's what's happening. That's what we see happening. This is really all that is going on presently is a, is a plot and is a conspiracy to overthrow the Lord God, to remove all vestiges of the institutions that he has established himself in his word. 
but they will not be able to succeed. The Lord says that he will go forth with his rod. He will smite the nations and they will honor him and he will bring them and he will draw them unto himself at his appointed time. Jesus will be victorious. That's what Daniel chapter 7, as we continue in subsequent sermons in Daniel 7, notice what verses 13 and 14 say. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Jesus will be victorious. Praise be to his holy and mighty name. So let's look at the third beast a little more closely here that arises out of this conflict, the winds blowing in uh, this great sea of nations. This describes, as we've already noted, the Greek uh, empire. Um, at the Battle of Issus, Alexander the Great de defeated Darius III in the year 333 BC. That was when, uh, typically as dated, uh, the beginning of the, of the uh, Greek Empire. Note the characteristics of this bestial kingdom. First of all, the, the beast is described as being a leopard, which is just another beast, like the other, the previous two, the lion and the bear. It's just another beast that hunts and crushes its prey. This beast, uh, this leopard, had four wings. Not just two wings, like the Babylonian lion had two wings in verse 14, I mean in verse 4. This beast had four wings, which indicates that it was uh, swifter than any of the ancient empires in the advance of its uh, control and power against the enemy, which is, which again, what is said here, what is signified here is absolutely true as it related to Alexander the Great. Within three years from the time that Alexander the Great in 336 became the sole king of, of that empire, within three years, by 333 BC, Alexander the Great had defeated the mighty bear, Persian Empire. And then, over the next 10 years, until his death, uh, he extended that great Grecian Empire. Though the Greek army uh, was smaller in size than the Persian Empire, and the Persian uh, army and the Persian fleet just as the leopard is smaller than than the bear uh, the Greek army moved more swiftly 
and more strategically against its foes and was able to overwhelm those who had larger armies. And this is again depicted in what we see here with regard to the leopard that has four wings. This leopard also has four heads. Heads in prophetic literature where, where they occur, uh, we often refer to the head of the state. That's uh, the, the chief ruler or the heads of the state, the chief rulers of a nation. And so this leopard had four heads, which signifies, again, four kings, four kingdoms. Uh, that is likewise uh, the case in other portions of Scripture. Uh, for example, in Revelation 17, I won't turn there, in verses 9 through 10, it says there are seven heads, and then it goes on to, in verse 10, say that the seven heads are seven kings, or kingdoms. So the four heads on the leopard of Greece, that this, this Grecian empire would devolve into four separate and distinct kingdoms. It happened exactly that way when Alexander died in 323 BC without an heir to the throne. And it was divided amongst his generals, the four, four uh, generals of Alexander the Great. Greece was given to Antipater, Asia Minor to Lysimachus, Syria to Seleucus, and Egypt to Ptolemy. Likewise, in the next chapter, Daniel chapter 8, uh, we're going to see another vision that Daniel receives from the Lord. And uh, this also will have in view the Grecian uh, uh, Empire and a notable horn uh, that protrudes from this he goat that crushes the ram, again, Greece crushing Persia, and that notable horn, again, is broken. Alexander is the, is the horn, the noble horn, and from that proceed, then, after the notable horn is broken, from that proceed four horns, once again, which speak of the division of the Grecian, the Grecian uh, empire into four distinct separate parts. This is absolutely amazing, isn't it not? To think that, uh, again, God, this is hundreds of years before these events actually took place that are being prophesied to occur, but this is our God who encourages us that his word is faithful and true. If his word is faithful and true in this matter, how can we be so bold as to say it's not faithful and true in whatever it says? It's the same God that's inspired it. This ought to build our confidence that whatever God says in his word, we can rely upon his promises, the historical information we find in his, in his word is faithful and true. And more and more, as historians and archaeologists begin to research, they find time and time and time 
confirmation of what God has already said in his word. But this is another example of, of this. We read that dominion was given to this beast, this leopard, given to it by whom? I submit to you, given to it by God. God is the one who gave dominion uh, to uh, the leopard, gave dominion to Alexander the Great, gave dominion to the four generals that ruled after Alexander the Great. It is God who gave that, them dominion. Not that they ruled on behalf of God, not that they acknowledged the one true living God, not that they were the ministers of God uh, for the good of, of God's people, uh, but nevertheless, God sovereignly is the one who raises up leaders and kingdoms and he gives to them their power for his own holy purposes. Think about it for a moment, dear ones. Alexander gained the whole world, but he lost his own soul. He lost his own soul. Isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26? For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for a soul? Should cause us to really consider he died a very young man. And yet there was no, nothing more. He cried because there was no more to conquer. He knew of no other lands to conquer. He had attained the glory, the power, the supremacy at that time, but yet he lost his own soul. He died without the Lord Jesus, without faith and trust in the living God. What did it gain him? What did it profit him? Which is more important in the balance, in your judgment? The pleasures and comforts of this life or the riches and glory of heaven? Which do you consider more important? Because what you consider to be more important is what you're going to, to value the most in your life. If you value possessions, if you value uh, relationships, if you value education, if you value uh, one's bank account uh, above the riches and the glory of Jesus Christ. Again, uh, I dare say that is going to be a miserable person because we can't hold on to the things of this world. The tighter that we grasp the things of this world, it's like dry sand. The tighter we grasp that sand, the more it seems to escape through our fingers. And that's the way it is. The tighter we try to hold on to the things of this world that's most important to us. These are blessings indeed God has given to us, but he's not given them to us to hold them as more valuable than him, than the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation, than the, the word of God, the commandments of God. That is what we should value above all else. P. 
peace, dear ones, in this world is only going to be realized when we give it all over to the Lord Jesus. As long as we hold on to it, as long as we cling to it as that which is most important to us, we'll really truly never know peace. We only know peace when we give over everything to him and acknowledge it doesn't ultimately belong to me, it ultimately belongs to the Lord God. And may I use it all for the glory of God, to bring honor to him and not merely to myself. The fourth kingdom that's mentioned here is the terrible beast with ten horns. In verses 7 through 8. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns. And behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things. And this, again, the parallel uh, continues that the fourth beast is parallel to the fourth metal uh, in that image of Nebuchadnezzar. And that the ten horns here are parallel to the toes, the ten toes in the image that was given to Nebuchadnezzar, the dream that was given to Nebuchadnezzar of that image. And this is Rome, the fourth kingdom that follows. Again, Babylon, conquered by the Medes and the Persians, conquered by Greece, conquered by Rome consecutively. There's two stages and periods of Rome's history that particularly we need to consider First is United Rome. Again, if you want to review in greater detail, we, we went through this in greater detail when we were going through Daniel chapter 2. But let me, again, just quickly, briefly review. There's two periods, United Rome and Divided Rome. United Rome uh, uh, existed and, and uh, there was a United Rome between 63 B.C., and 476 A.D. And that uh, parallels, again, in the, in the image of that, of that dream, it parallels the legs of iron during the time of the Caesars of Rome. The Caesars of Rome. And this is what we are considering now, in that there is only one terrible beast, Though it has ten horns, there is the united Rome uh, of one terrible beast. During the rule of the Caesars of Rome, uh, with its iron teeth here depicted in this beast, they devoured, they crushed 
all the nations, all the kingdoms that stood in their way. They extended the empire that they conquered from the Greeks. They extended it even far more than it was under the Greeks. The Greeks had, it ex had extended it uh, beyond the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians had extended it beyond Babylon. So each kingdom that rules extends it beyond the previous kingdom that is conquered. And so the United Kingdom extends the empire until the last emperor of Rome, reigning in Rome, Romulus Augustus, uh, who was removed from the throne by the barbarian king Odoacer in 476 AD. Let me make one further uh, brief distinction within the period of the United uh, Roman Empire. There's a pagan period of that United Roman Empire, and there's a Christian uh, period of that United Roman Empire. The pagan period is from 63 BC to 313 AD. The Christian period begins with Constantine uh, at the Treaty of Milan in 313 AD and extends to uh, the time of Romulus Caesar or Romulus Augustus in 476. So that's the period of the United Rome. Uh, the period of divided Rome. Uh, this is represented uh, in Daniel's dream by ten horns uh, on the head of this terrible, uh, indescribable beast. And by the ten toes of the feet composed of iron and clay in the great image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in both dreams, there is a, a division into ten parts in the image, ten toes, in the beast, and this last beast, ten horns. And the, the division of this indicates that there would come a, a, a time in Rome's history in which its united power and strength, its united language, its united culture uh, would be divided and weakened uh, like the mixture of iron and clay, trying to get iron and clay to adhere one to another, that this division would be uh, not something that would hold fast, that it would not be... Uh, after this division, a united Rome, but it would be rather a divided Rome. When did this happen? Well, as we consider the horns, the ten horns, let me simply make this observation that in biblical prophecy, um, horns do not signify uh, that which you honk. Okay, that's, that's not what a uh, is represented by a horn in biblical prophecy. But uh, horns in biblical prophecies uh, speak of the, the powerful horns 
the mighty horns upon a vicious animal. Uh, that's what horns that we ought to think of when we think in terms of the horns on, uh, of a beast. They signify, again, just like heads, that we talked about the four heads, signify kings and kingdoms. So likewise, horns signify in biblical literature kings and kingdoms. <clears throat> and it may, again, even though it may say uh, that it represents uh, ten kings, uh, we ought not to think that, um, that uh, it simply represents ten individual kings, but it represents uh, kingdoms uh, as well. Yeah, they, each of those kingdoms have a ruler uh, at that time or subsequently, but it basically represents uh, something that doesn't simply end, a horn doesn't simply end once that king dies, but it continues with that particular kingdom. And it may have a number of kings uh, uh, under one horn, but one kingdom that, that is in view. So kings and kingdoms, uh, when they represent a, a horn, can be used interchangeably. Uh, if it says king, it can represent a kingdom. And that again is, is I think, made clear in, uh, for example, in Daniel 7, verse 17, it says these great beasts, these four beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. And yet, when we look at verse 23, it says that they represent uh, kingdoms. Verse 23 says, Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. So in verse 17, it's a king, but in verse 23, it's a kingdom. And that, that back and forth occurs uh, in, uh, in these chapters. So again, don't, don't, because it says a king, don't think that we have to identify a specific king uh, with a specific name. It, it, it represents a kingdom and it may in, in, involve a number of kings. God makes known to Daniel, again, hundreds of years before uh, Rome even existed as a uh, worldwide empire, and hundreds of years certainly before Rome was divided. Uh, uh, in, into these ten kingdoms, uh, that this would occur. That these major events would occur in history and that the mighty united Western Roman Empire would cease as to its unity. And from within it would rise ten kingdoms that would be divided one against another yet occupying basically that same territory, uh, that same land that was occupied by the united Western Roman Empire with its capital in Rome. Again, the question is, when did this happen? Well, there is a period of time in which the barbarian kingdoms rose up to divide among themselves, the Western Roman Empire. 
primarily in the 5th and 6th centuries AD. These ten barbarian kingdoms included the following, the Heruli, Ostrogoths, and Lombards in various parts of present Italy, the Visigoths in what are presently parts of Hungary, Austria, Croatia, and Serbia, the Suevi in what is presently Spain and Portugal, the Franks in what is presently France, the Burgundians in various parts of Europe at different times, including Scandinavia, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and northern France, the Anglo-Saxons in what is presently Britain, the Vandals in what is presently part of Italy, and the Alemanni in what is presently Germany. These were the ten main barbarian kingdoms that infiltrated the Western Roman Empire, divided it, and weakened it from that, that strong unity that Rome once had as an empire. Some interpreters identify these uh, ten horns of this beast uh, not with the ten uh, barbarian kingdoms that I just mentioned, but rather uh, interpret these ten horns to be ten Roman emperors by name, specific emperors who reigned from the time of Augustus to the time of Titus, who was the emperor at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. However, there is one very important passage of scripture that I believe shows that could not possibly be the right interpretation. And that is found in the book of Revelation where again it speaks of these ten horns uh, in Revelation 17.12. Speaks of these ten horns. And it says, and the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received, notice, which have received no kingdom as yet. They are not ruling. They have not yet ruled. At the time that John is writing about the ten kings, they are yet future to John in the first century. They could not have been the ten uh, emperors that, is, that are mentioned by some who look at the ten horns as being specific emperors. John says that the ten horns have not yet received a kingdom. They, in other words, they've not yet begun to rule. They, they don't have any power. In fact, they don't even exist uh, yet. <clears throat> Thus, we should... Uh, not be searching for these ten kingdoms, these ten horns, before the time of John or at the time of John, but rather after the time of John, after the first century, which I submit to you, these ten barbarian kingdoms rising up in the fifth and sixth centuries 
do uh, fulfill uh, that particular criteria. And we're going in on this, uh, this, but it won't it'll take me a few minutes, but uh, I do want to say something about the little horn. The little horn that appears among the ten horns. So we've identified the ten horns as being ten kingdoms and have looked in history to find those ten kingdoms that divided the United Roman Empire the Western Roman Empire. But what about this uh, little horn in verse 8? I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. Behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, I'm not going to spend... Uh, hardly any time today because uh, later on in the same chapter uh, John wants to especially know I'm sorry Daniel especially wants to know about this little horn and uh, God gives uh, through his angel interpretation of what this uh, little horn is gives much more information so we'll spend more time later on but I do want to at least give you some indication as to what the little horn is not and and yet what the little horn is. So this, first of all, to, to take this away uh, from the passage, this little horn is contemporaneous with the, the ten horns uh, that uh, arise uh, that the, the little horn arises among the ten horns. So it's contemporaneous with them in history, okay, at the, uh, at the same time. Uh, it's little because it begins, uh, uh, compared to the other kingdoms, it begins with little power, uh, at least a little uh, perhaps political power. But it grows. Uh, to gain, as we'll see, more and more as we consider toward the end of Daniel 7 that it grows to increase in great power, even worldwide power. <clears throat> Some interpreters believe that the little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes, the archenemy of the faithful Jews in the second century BC, and we'll have things to say as we continue through Daniel, the book of Daniel, about Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, but uh, but uh, I, again, would go back to the fact that um, John, in, Re in Revelation chapter 17, says that the ten horns have not yet had power, so how could um, this little horn uh, be Antiochus Epiphanes, which predated John by uh, 150 uh, years. Um, so uh, we've already noted the ten horns could not be before John. Well, no, the ten horns couldn't be before John. The little horn that appears among them could not be before John. So I don't think that Antiochus Epiphanes meets, again, the, the criterion, the standard that we're looking for here at all. 
Some interpreters uh, in, uh, would see the little horn as Nero, uh, the arch enemy of faithful Christians in Rome. But again, as we've already noted, if the ten horns uh, have not yet received power at the time that John is writing the book of Revelation, then the little horn that appears among them could not have received power yet either. And, uh, and so I believe that also eliminates uh, Nero, uh, who ruled in the first century. Some interpreters uh, believe that the little horn is a yet future world leader, a future ant antichrist. Well, let me suggest that this view, though very, very popular today, uh, I, I believe is not the correct view because it breaks up the historical continuity that we find in Daniel chapter 7, where we begin again consecutively. Beast 1, beast 2, beast 3, beast 4, following consecutively. The ten horns divide uh, the, uh, the unity of the Roman uh, Empire in the West that follows consecutively as soon as again the um, emperor in Rome is dethroned in 476 we find that these kingdoms have have arisen are there so there's again that continuity but this particular view the futurist view um, wants to take the ten kingdoms separated from from the the beast and put it forward hundreds even a, uh, more than a thousand years into the future. And again, I don't think that that's uh, uh, without some indication from the text itself that that is what's happening. I don't think that we should just be jumping forward hundreds and thousands of years. Uh, so I, I, it's kind of like what happens in, when we get to Daniel chapter 9. Uh, there, there are um, spoken of 70 weeks of years, 490 years. And the futurist position wants to take the first 483 years consecutively. But then it wants to separate the last, uh, the last week, the last seven years, by thousands of years, without any indication in the text that there's any separation at all uh, between the 70th week and the first 69 weeks. Again, unless God tells us, I think that we should keep, keep those time periods together. And so I don't think that the futurist position with, with regard to the little horn being a, uh, being a uh, future uh, ruler, a future antichrist, I don't believe that that uh, honors the historical continuity that we see here and that we ought to maintain. So the position I, I believe that has been held by many, um, I don't know that it's as popular today as it once was, uh, but I believe it is the correct and biblical interpretation, uh, is that the little horn is the, the kingdom of papal Rome. They began small and began without political power, but increased during this period of time, these 10 kingdoms, uh, barbarian kingdoms increased and increased and grew to where basically 
uh, the Ten Kingdoms, uh, what is now Europe, uh, historically honored uh, the Pope as being, the papacy as being uh, that great power uh, to which they uh, uh, bowed, uh, before, before whom they paid um, such reverence and worshipped even. Well, were there three, uh, it says three horns fell before the, uh, the little horn. Were there three kingdoms that fell at that time? Uh, indeed, there were uh, three kingdoms that fell not to be restored. The, the Heruli were wiped out in 493, the Vandals in 534, the Ostrogoths were eliminated in 538. <clears throat> Daniel will give us more information later on in this chapter concerning this little horn that has here, in verse 8, this little horn has the eyes of man, it says. That is, he, he has man's wisdom, not God's wisdom. He has the eyes of man. He has the insight of man, not the, not the insight of God. Uh, and uh, furthermore, says that this a little horn has a mouth speaking great things about himself. Um, not speaking uh, great things about Lord God, you know, honoring God, but again, great things, uh, which uh, the papacy has uh, spoken great things about itself. For example, uh, the papacy has claimed that it is God on earth. The papacy has claimed that uh, the uh, papacy is the vicar of Christ, the head of the church, wherein Jesus says he's alone the head of the church. Even if the papacy says that the, the papacy uh, is the head of the church on earth, uh, that's, that's contrary to scripture. There is no other head, whether the church in heaven, whether the church on earth, there is only one head, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The vicar of Christ, uh, the actual meaning of that term, vicar, uh, means uh, in place of Christ. In place of Christ. Vicar of Christ means a substitute Christ. In place of Christ. That's what it, so they're claiming that instead of Christ being head of the church here upon the earth, it's the papacy in, that is in place of Christ. But interestingly... That's exactly what the term antichrist means in Greek. It means in place of Christ, antichrist. Here we find that the, the, the papacy, in claiming to be the vicar of Christ, in place of Christ, assumes, whether it wants to or not, assumes the title antichrist in place of Christ. We'll have more to say about this uh, as, we, as we proceed through this chapter, but the Apostle Paul identifies this uh, man of sin, the son of perdition, <clears throat> in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. And he says uh, concerning this one, Characteristics of this one sound very much like the, again, the uh, 
the little horn, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So here is, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, here is one who is worshipped. Uh, here is one that is called God. Uh, here is one who is seated in and takes up a seat in the temple of God. And again, I don't believe we're talking here, Paul's talking about a restored temple in the future. Uh, how many times does Paul refer to the church as being the temple of God uh, in the New Testament? So here is one who takes up his seat in the church of God, showing himself that he is God. God grant us uh, the eyes, not of a man, to have mere human wisdom, but God grant us the eyes and the mind of Jesus Christ to understand, because the role of this great horn, as we'll see, the role of this man of sin, the son of perdition, as, as we will see, is to deceive and to mislead. How does... How does the man of sin mislead? It misleads by false teaching, by false doctrine, by proclaiming that the scriptures are not supreme. They're not authoritative, that the decrees that are made, the oral tradition of the church is equal in authority to the holy scriptures. Once you make that pronouncement, then, then basically oral tradition can trump anything that's said in Scripture. And it has. It's added to, it's taken away from Scripture by way of their oral tradition. It has misled and deceived by way of perverting the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. So that it is not, we are not declared righteous before God by faith alone in Christ alone, but faith plus works to be declared righteous. That's a perversion. That's leading and misleading people to destruction. It has deceived by way of its vain worship, bowing down, showing reverence to images, Introducing all manner of idolatry before praying to Mary, praying to the saints. Again, all of these are perversions to God's word introduced by the little horn, by the man of sin, by the Antichrist. We'll, as I said, have much more to say but about this, but I pray that this little introduction uh, to this might uh, be used of the Lord to drive you to understand uh, how we must be constantly aware 
of the perversions, the deception of the enemy to mislead. It's not the church that claims to be the oldest, that is the, the pure and faithful church. There, was, there, were, there were heresies that were being addressed even in the times of the apostles in the church that were being promoted that they had to deal with. Those heresies could claim to be most ancient. That doesn't make them right just because they're, they're ancient. It's not the church that's universal because it says that the whole world will worship and follow after the beast. So it's not the church that's universal that is to be viewed as the pure and the faithful church. And yet those are the things that are often claimed uh, to make uh, the papal church of Rome to be uh, the, uh, the only true church. And yet, again, uh, it's certainly, again, uh, not the apostolic church uh, because apostolic doctrine contradicts so many of the teachings that we find in the church of Rome. And so we need to love those who are in the Church of Rome to pray for them. But we also need to pray that the Lord would crush um, uh, this whole system, Romish system, that has enslaved and that has led so many by way of deception into darkness. That their eyes might be open to see the purity of Jesus Christ, the gospel, his word, and his worship to the glory of Christ. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, how we thank thee and praise thee that thy, thy word is truth. And Lord, Thy word judges all other pronouncements by men. Thy word is supreme and authoritative. And we cast ourselves upon the Lord Jesus, the purity of his, of his gospel, the purity of his truth and the excellency of his authority over his church as alone head of the church, not sharing that headship with any human being. We pray, our God, that we would, by thy grace, not be misled, not deceived, as there are so many that are perverting the truth and the gospel of Christ and his pure worship and the authority of scripture today, but that, Lord, we would fall before thee, that we would have the eyes and mind of Christ, not the eyes of a man, that we would speak Great things not concerning ourselves, but great things concerning Jesus Christ, the glory of God, and his truth. 
Lord, thank thee for thy word and thy truth today. We ask that thou would give to us understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.